Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Feckin' Metal. I am your host, Virgil Trainer. Now, this is not a, an episode about Black Sabbath. I will get to that again soon. But today I spoke to Mick Wall, who is my favourite rock journalist of all time. I've been reading his work since 2001, when I first picked up my first issue of Classic Rock, and it was a feature on Guns N' Roses, for which he is famous. Uh, it was a reprint of that famous Kerrang! story from the 80s, where Axl Rose threatened to fight Vince Neil from Motley Crue. Guns are knives, motherfucker, you might remember it. Anyway, I didn't ask him about that, because every single person on the face of the earth has asked him about that, but I did ask him about quite a lot of other things, and Mick was very forthcoming, very candid, and to be honest, probably the best interviewee I've ever had on feckin' metal. I'm not going to beat around the bush with this intro. I'm just going to leave you with the interview I conducted today with Mick. This is Mick Wall. Anyway, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. I don't, I'm not sure if this is real or some crazy dream, as Iron Maiden might say. But um, Well, it's a bit good. of both, Fergal. I find life is basically a crazy dream that happens to be real. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, thanks a million for doing this. I really appreciate it. I know I was pestering you there for a while, but... Um, no, no, not at all. I was being an arsehole by not getting around to it. It's just... What can I say? You know, I find it very difficult to... find it difficult to, to, to get around to these things because there's so much other bollocks going on that there's not much brain left and the little bit that's left, you know... It, it it needs a it, it has a lot of shit that it has to deal with you know but anyway the river of shit as you described it the river of shit that's the title of my next book it's a <laughs> autobiography of late middle age called the river of shit and then there's the, the collector's edition which is the fucking river of shit yeah <laughs> you can release that two years later with a bonus chapter. <laughs> Uh, very good. Look, um, I, I I know you have Irish roots, actually. Um, I've read your book, Get Your Rocks Off, and you mentioned your parents were Irish and stuff. So what's the um, the background of your, your Irish roots? Well, I don't know the full story because my dad was a bit of a, a character, as they say. Um, he came, his family, he came from Donegal. Right. I don't know where in Donegal because my dad was one of the world's leading liars, and uh, he would just tell you a different story every time. But the main story was, according to him, so it's probably a lie, um, He, this is his actual story. He told me that he broke a chair over his own dad's back. I remember reading that, yeah. <laughs> oh, did I write that? Okay. You did indeed, yeah, you did. <laughs> okay, when he was 14 yeah. and, and left and never came back. Um, and then after he died, got three younger brothers and one of them knows all about computers. Um, and he discovered after the old man died that, in fact, um, he'd gone from Donegal to Scotland and had actually married a woman in Dundee and had a daughter with her. And then I think he had a daughter with another woman in Dundee and then he fled Scotland, came down to England 
and met another woman who was my mother right and got her pregnant um and that was me okay. um and that is the full extent of of knowledge of my fat my father's side of the family right um my mother i know a bit more about uh she came her family comes from offley hmm. uh the town of burr burr and offley yeah um, in fact, my youngest brother is over there right now. Uh, I've never been. I really want to go. I'm going to try and do something about that as soon as they let, excuse me, as soon as COVID and all that bullshit lets me back in. Um, but I'm also a bit nervous because, um, you know, it's a bit late in the game to be pretending we're all one big happy family, you know. Um, nevertheless... I've got children, and so for their sake, as much as anything, I'd like to have some connection with the past. Because I never met any of my mother's family until she was dying. Right, okay. And, and in fact, it wasn't until she died, and I was filling in the death certificate. She died when I was 28, and she was like 47. She died of cancer of the brain. Okay. And um, I was filling in the death because my dad couldn't read or write so i'm filling in the death certificate and it gets the you know, name of spouse or whatever and i and i knew i figured it out by then that you know they weren't married and and i said to him uh, name and he went oh danny wall and i went name and he went wilson danny wilson so wall was my mother's name Right. And I, and I didn't know that for sure until I was filling in her death certificate. Wow. Okay. But turns out, through a bit of digging, this is the other thing I know about my dad, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but from what my brother could find out, Wilson was his mother's name. And in fact, his father's name was Black. Okay. And apparently they were fishermen, I think, in Donegal. And he was known, his name was Richard Black. This is probably all bullshit. But he was known as, I was told he was known as Dick of the Rock, which is kind of interesting when you think where I where I fit in, Dick <laughs> of the Rock. It's like, you know, it's like a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. You know. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, that one came true anyway. <laughs> very good. That's that's very interesting, actually. Um, didn't really know any of those details, obviously. Um, so you're obviously you're no stranger to podcasts yourself. You've had two. Um, you had uh, Get Your Rocks Off, which finished uh, a while back, and you had um, Dead Rock Stars. So you, your co-hosts were Joe McIver and John Hutton. Like, is is this a medium you like? You came to it quite late in the game. But do you like podcasting? Is this have you found something new here that that interests you? I like the sound of my own voice, further. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, after we finish this, I will be dragging the current Mrs. Wall to a pub, um, and I will delight anyone who cares to listen to my rambling bollocks. You know, <laughs> um, uh, so I mean, I, I did, I did um, my broadcasting, if you like, started in the eighties. I, I was a guest every week on a weekly show on sort of the fledgling Sky TV called The Monsters of Rock. Mm. And I started out as a weekly guest. I would come on and review albums. 
um because the girl they had doing it she was like this kind of sexy rock chick who knew absolutely fuck all about rock you know ask her what the difference is between ozzy and dio you know never heard of either of them mate is one of them from australia So, um, so i'd come on and add a bit of cred and then she left and they offered the job to me. Mm. And so for about three years, for £100 a show, I would come on and act the Egypt for an hour. I hated it because I was shit. And I knew I was shit. Um, everybody knew it, to be honest. And, um, and I remember they were having, it must have been like the summer of 86, and they were going to have a three-week break. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll stay with it till the three-week break, and then they've got a chance to find someone else. And I remember I typed a letter uh, resigning and saying, you know, we all know I'm shite, so I'll, I'll, let's just call it a day. And I remember I stuck it in my back jeans pocket, and we used to record the show on a Thursday morning. And um, I think it was just the knowledge that I would never, ever, ever have to do it again mm. kind of set me free a little bit and you know you're doing okay when crew, crew members start to laugh and snigger <laughs> um and so i just had a bit of fun yeah and, and uh and at the end of it i left and i swear to god i was on my way back to the tube station i lived in london in those days to go home and i realized i still had the letter in my back pocket I thought, oh, fuck it. I'll get a stamp and send it to them, you know? Mm. And then a couple of days went by and I suddenly thought, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And then after that, I started to enjoy it. And we started to get loads of, because no email in those days, started to get cards and letters and people would start to send caricatures of me. I was getting, at its height, I was getting like 5,000 letters a week. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, um, and th- this was at sh- when Sky was at its shittiest. I think the most popular show on the channel when I started was Mr. Ed the Talking Horse, right? Mr. Ed the Talking Horse is up there. I remember that. <laughs> then there's me. <laughs> and then way down below me, there's like Pat Sharp and Gary Davis and all the other Wow, yeah. Mr. Ed Mr. And, and the Dick of Rock in second place. The Dick of the Rock, that's right. So, um, but uh, so I, I, yeah, I really got into that. And I, of course, once you, once you get good at something, you know, you start to enjoy it. Mm. And, uh, and I did. And it just went ballistic. I mean, I, a lot of girls used to watch the show. I remember going to um, Dublin in 1987, 88, and I had never been to Ireland before. Mm. I must have been about 29, and it was uh, maybe 88, 88, I think. And um, I was at a Bon Jovi show, and they were doing the big, I don't know what it's called, The Point, is it? I don't know. The it, big, was, it was The Point, yeah. The Enormo Dome in Dublin. Yeah. And um, I was very well known to road crews and people in those days because in the rock business, they all end up working. Mm. You know, if you met the guys with, with Def Leppard, suddenly they're working with yeah. Don. Yeah. 
I remember standing at the, um, you know, the sound desk, the mixing desk in the middle of the hall. And uh, I swear it was fantastic, man. I swear to God, there were um, this very pretty girl said, you're Mick Wall. Can I have a kiss? And I'm like, I'm just there. You know, I was like, oh, yeah. Next thing, her mate. Can I have a kiss? Yeah, yeah. Next thing, another one, another one. Suddenly, I'm not, I'm not joking, right? There's a fucking line of girls. <laughs> All waiting for a kiss. Jesus, right. No phone numbers were exchanged or, or no uh, extracurricular activity went on. It was just a kiss. Mm. I remember thinking, I love fucking Ireland, man. I love these girls. They're so funny. <laughs> and then um, a few months later, I went back to Dublin with Thunder. Do you know the group? Thunder? I do, yeah. yeah. Their first album hadn't come out yet. It's a long story, but I, I kind of knew the people behind them and I'd written about them. And so uh, they're still doing pubs and stuff. We go to our, um, Dublin and they're doing a pub. And there must have been about 60 people in this pub. And I was more famous than the band because Ireland was one of the few places that used to get the Monsters of Rock show for free. Yeah. Everywhere else in Europe had to pay a subscription or something like that. Mm. And um, the Guinnesses are piling up. You know what I mean? Bosh, <laughs> bosh, bosh. And in those days, there was no idea, well, I, I, maybe I should pace myself. It was like, fuck it. <laughs> and uh, so the band come on and they're struggling away. You know, no one's paying any attention. And uh, they get to the encore and they decide they're going to do Brown Sugar by the Stones. Mm. And they're like, Mick, Mick, come up, come up and join us. And I'm like, fuck that. But the crowd are going, hey! <laughs> so, so up I go, right? Yeah. I am so pissed I can barely stand up. <laughs> but here we go, brown sugar. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you, brown sugar. And, and at the end of it, I fell backwards. I tripped and fell backwards. And I smashed into the drums and they all went flying. Right. That was the end of the show. Um, <laughs> Very good. Yeah, nice yeah. finale there. Yeah, yeah. There's another. I got other first going to Ireland stories. Going with Aussie, but that you know, we'll be here all day if I start telling all those. But so I've always had a, always had a, a fondness for Ireland. But also, actually, on a serious note, my dad. Um, obviously, there's something about writing I liked, or it wouldn't have happened. Mm. But, like, people go, oh, you know, you, you love your heavy metal, you know. No. I mean, I do, but that isn't it. It's the stories. Mm. And, and, and that, those guys have the best stories of all. They do. Um, and, and my dad was a musician, played Irish music and Scottish music. He used to do a lot of rebel songs as well. I remember he would, uh, so they'd be out doing pubs in the evening, him and his band, Johnny Lynch, Northern Ireland, Jimmy, uh, Snuffy Harry. He was Welsh. He was the odd man out. Right. A um, few other fucking lunatics. And um, Dave Harrigan. I remember him. He had a limp. Um, and uh, they would get back at two in the morning and he would get my mum to get me out of bed. I was an only child till I was seven. Mm. Like I'm five years old, four or five years old. Get him out of bed, bring him down, give him a shandy. And it was disgusting. You know? But I, so uh, and I would stand in front of the fire. They'd make me sing a song. 
And the song they would make me sing were, Her eyes, they sparkled like diamonds. <laughs> I taught her the queen of the land. Yes. But her hair had hung over her shoulder, tied up with a, a black velvet band. There you go. You see, much better voice than me. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and then about three in the morning, they'd run out of gas, you know, and they would just sit and tell stories. And I would not know half of what they were talking about, obviously, but the laughter got me. And that's why I, and I would start laughing too. And I just loved hanging out with those guys and the crack. I loved the crack. Mm. And um, I was first published writing about punk bands, not because I was so mad about punk, but because uh, that was the only jobs going, you know, yeah. uh, the, the proper writers got the big stuff. No experience necessary, right? There you go. Exactly. Um, and, uh, uh, and then I got an opportunity to, to to write a review of UFO and then status quo and thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy was the big one. And suddenly I thought, fuck me, why am I wasting my time talking to these miserable wankers that want to be Johnny Rock? Mm. Well, I could be hanging out with Philo or Phil Mogg or um, anybody in the rock world who you just had a fantastic time with. And the stories and tears would be rolling down your face, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that was the beginning of it. That was the beginning of me thinking, because I like music, but it wasn't, uh, I'd stopped reading music papers years before I started writing for them. None of it interested me. But hanging out with guys that could tell a story I mean, mm. Phil Liner, Jesus fucking Christ, funny as fuck, mm. but a hard man, you know, a hard man. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, it's my fucking phone dinging. Let me just... No worries. That's Francis Rossi. Oh, yeah. Oh, he he sends me lots of jokes. You were on a tour with him there recently, although I don't want you to get distracted. You're talking about Phil Liner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, God. I mean, we'll be here all day. If I start on that, you know, we can do more of these. Don't worry, Fergal. But let, let's move on and we'll be here forever. Okay. No worries. Yeah. Um, my favorite Phil Lynott story, by the way, is the Fleetwood Mac one, which is hilarious. I've, I've heard you tell it many times. <laughs> I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with that. But uh, yeah, it's a good one. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, because you didn't want to, um, you know, the, the killer line was uh, I don't offer this to just anybody. Mm. So that was it, me and Phil. You know, yeah. hey, I'm not just anybody. Right? <laughs> Turned out I was. Yeah. Uh, well, you're in the inner circle there for a while, anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Very good. Uh, so, look, I, I first came across you in Classic Rock magazine. Now, I said I wouldn't talk to you about the Axel Rose story because everybody always asks you about that and it's been done to death. But it was actually a reprint of that story. The famous crying story that uh, piqued my interest in an issue of classic rock in I think 2001, and Axel was there in his ginger glory on the on the cover, um, and you were you'd written some more surrounding the story, but you reprinted that famous interview. But um, so I know you wrote for like you wrote for Sounds, and you, you were one of the founders of Kerrang and all of that. But um, in like 98, when uh, 
old school rock music didn't really have a voice. Uh, you were one of the founders of Classic Rock magazine. And I was just wondering what instigated that and why did you decide to do it at that time? Well, to be fair, um, it really came about because of a guy called Jerry Ewing. Hmm. Uh, and what it was was Metal Hammer was published by a company called Dennis Publishing, which was uh, Felix Dennis, who was a famous, back in the late 60s, the Oz trial and all this business. If you Google Felix Dennis, he's dead now, but he was a, a wild man who became mega rich. Right. And um, they were publishing Metal Hammer. And the way the building was, was um, you're in the Metal Hammer office and then you went through a door into an adjoining office and that was what they called the one-shot department. Pre-internet, I mean, the internet was there, but this was, you know, I remember when we first got email, the editor could get email and you hear a ding. You go, oh, no, let's have a look. Hey, email, email. So people bought magazines and yeah. the one-shot department was... Um, Literally that, one-off magazines. Um, and, and the editor of that of that department was Jerry Ewing, who uh, had written for Metal Hammer for years and uh, was a big rock and metal fan. And we'd been talking, I'd been doing some PR about a year or so before, and I was looking after Bruce Dickinson and Lemmy and a few people. And so there were a few trips away and drinks and God knows what else. And there was a sort of a running gag that I had about, because um, this was the year of the lads, Max. There was Loaded, FHM, Front, loads of them. Um, and I had a joke that I wanted to start uh, a more adult version of a music rock magazine called Heavy Fucking Metal, HFM. Mm. So uh, what, what did I say it was called? F, um, FHM was it? FHM is the other one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something in, we'll have HFM. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ha, 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 we, you know. And, um, but it was definitely an idea that seemed normal. You know, Mojo magazine had come along, Uncut, Vox magazine, all these kind of monthly magazines for, for, for slightly older music lovers. But where Mojo and Vox was aimed at people that used to buy the NME and the Melody Maker or Sounds, we said, let's have one for people that used to buy Kerrang! or Metal Hammer. Mm. But Jerry was the one that instigated it under the umbrella of the one-shot. So the very first issue of Classic Rock came out in October 98 as a one-shot. Right. Um, so kind of like a, a pilot episode of a TV show or something like that. Is it? A bit like that, but he 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 wangled it. Um, so uh, it was a one shot, and then two months later, they did another one, mm. and that could happen with one shots. If it sold particularly well, you might do another one, uh, and then two months after that, another one. But what happened is, is between Jerry ringing me up and saying, "Going to do this." We want to put that same Axl Rose story on the cover. And it says on the cover of issue one, by Mick Wall. That was the whole yeah. selling point. I've seen an image of it already. I've seen it. Right. Um, but by the time that magazine, that issue actually came out in October 98, Jerry had actually gone to work for F 
no. FHM? Maxim. Maxim. Yeah, yeah. Maxim was like the Dennis publishing version of FHM. And uh, and it was considered a really good job, you know. I mean, you couldn't, you could see why he took it. Mm. And and literally between uh, that one and the one that came out, the second one that came out two months later, I became the editor. Mm. Um, because it wasn't really anybody else. I mean, it was a, uh, it, it was like it, it existed issue by issue. So I did the cover story on the first five issues of Classic Rock, mainly because. There was no one else to write it. Um, I mean, Jerry had so few writers that there were quite a few. One, and I, I used to do one shots for him as well. I did one on Feng Shui. I did one on cool mobile phones. I mean, nothing was too low for me. Um, but I remember he used to have a byline because it couldn't just be Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. He used to make up names. And he had a, my favorite of his was Armitage Shanks. Um, which if you go into a urinal, yeah. you'll see yeah, Armitage Shanks. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. What a guy. Yeah. So um, that was the environment. And um, and I remember the Metal Hammer people, I made a joke and they did not find it funny. Uh, I was saying to them, listen, you wait till we're out selling you. You'll be begging me for a job. Hmm. They didn't even laugh. They just thought we were such a piece of shit. We were so like, not, not in any way significant. Mm. And that's what it was like. The record business didn't take us seriously. We couldn't even get the record company to send us a new Bon Jovi album to review. Right. Because we were just, what are you? There was no launch. You're like a one shot. Mm. You're like a novelty. What are you? Mm. So, um, so I took that and I built it and built it and made myself very unpopular because... And this is an important distinction, really. Um, you know, when I was editor of Classic Rock, I would constantly get people saying, we should do more new bands. And I would go, why? If it's a band you've never fucking heard of, who wants to read about it? And they're like, well, we need to promote talent. I'm like, why? We're not in the music business. We're in the magazine business. What we want is for fuckers to buy the magazine. Okay, they're not going to buy it because some band they've never heard of is in there. They'll buy it if Led Zeppelin is on the cover or Metallica or whoever it is. You yeah, know. that made me very, very unpopular because um, the whole thing had been started by rock and metal enthusiasts, and um, I see now that that you know I could have been a lot more accommodating. But I just felt they were clueless when it came to writing, when it came to magazines. Um, the heavy metal writers, right back to the days of sound, that's good ones in the 70s, like early days of Kerrang! say. They just weren't the best writers. They, they you know, just fucking loved Iron Maiden or whoever it was, and that was great. But they couldn't write for shit. Um, and... Uh, and I just felt it was a big missed opportunity. You know, their question is, well, how's it going? And what the fuck is that? You know, write something crazy. So that's how I sort of made my career. I'm living there about a year, and one of the other writers said to me, do you actually like rock music? And I went, <laughs> well, sometimes. 
I knew it. I knew it. You're an imposter. I'm like, no, I'm fucking not. I, the reason you've got a fucking job is the magazine sells. And why does it sell? Da -da. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know how Karay got its name? Uh, I think I remember the story, but remind me, actually, one. Because on Sounds, which covered everything, there was a little kind of enclave of different... So there was Gary Bushell, who used mm. to write about punk, punk, like when it was, oi, oi, exploited, oi, fuck you. Yeah. So when he answered, the, the, people would ring the magazine and the switch would just put it through willy-nilly. Whoever on the phone answered the phone. And he would answer it and go, oi, oi. And that's how you knew it was Gary Bushell. And you go, ring back. Um, there were two people into reggae. Uh, and one of them, Eric Fuller, who went on to become a big publisher with Dennis Publishing years later. He was very well-spoken, very kind of middle-class career guy, but he loved reggae. But he was a bit clueless. I remember um, uh, the week Bob Marley died, in Sounds we ran a story that Eric had written saying, I think the headline was something like, Marley on the mend. Yeah. You know, and then he fucking died. Mm. Uh, and at the meeting that week, we said, well, perhaps we should do something. You know, uh, he's like, nah, 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 don't worry about it, don't worry. Enemy put it on the cover, you know. And I remember when there were the, the London riots um, down in a lot of the black ghettos in South London, as they were there. And at another meeting, I remember we were saying to Eric, Eric, maybe you should you know, get in there and write about this. And he was like, oh, I don't see why. There'll probably be a couple of, you know, reggae singles come out of it. Bomb, bomb, diddly, guns in a Brixton, you know. And we're all going, fuck, man, that's, that's harsh, you know. Yeah, yeah. But whenever he or the other person that wrote about reggae and they answered the phone, they would literally go, you know, you know Jar says or some fucking thing. Uh, and then there was me, Pete Mikowski, and Jeff Barton that would write about horrible heavy metal. Yeah. And whenever we answered the phone, we would go, Ta-da! Or, Yes, yeah. So it was a joke. The whole thing was a joke. Yeah. You either kind of got it or you didn't. So I remember, I remember, like, I used to always read the inner pages of um, classic rock i read it for a long time and actually it's funny that you mentioned people were always pestering you to write about new bands because eventually they did and i think um the, the quality of the magazine declined as a result uh personally i think that but um are I you find when i left Fergal. <laughs> what i was about to say this now is that um i remember seeing you always as editor-in-chief and then all of a sudden you became i think editor at large is that right no, no, no. I was always editor. Oh, were you? And then, I, then I became editor-in-chief. Okay. But the person I'd hired to replace me, she just wasn't well-known in the business. Yeah. So, fuck knows what I was thinking. But I said, listen, let's put your name right at the top. Editor, Sean Llewellyn. Yeah. And then below that, editor-in-chief, Mick Wall, which was a stupid thing to do. But I was desperate to get away. I mean, I, I, I'd only taken the job as a temporary thing, and now here I was three years later or something, and I just yeah. was to get away, you know? And why did you leave? Because uh, there wasn't anything that happened to me on Classic Rock that hadn't already happened to me ten times over on Correct. 
Mm. I'd already done my own weekly show. I'd done my own weekly radio show. I'd written books. Um, the last three or four years on Kerrang, when it went week, I was there when it went weekly. Um, my average was, I think there would be 51 issues a year because they mm. wouldn't put one out at Christmas. Yeah. And my average was about, of those 51 issues, I would have done about between 34 and 40 of the cover stories. Uh, okay. I was living in LA, having a lot of fun. Mm. And, um, and now cut to six or seven years later, and I'm the boss on this magazine full of um, full of people that didn't really know what the fuck they were doing. People on the staff that I hired did. But the freelancers, I was like that uh, pantomime villain. You know, they, they really hated me because I never pulled any punches. I take great joy in telling them what shit their stories were and yeah. I'm going to rewrite them. I used to rewrite stories all the time, you know. Mm. Um, I was in a dark fucking place, and I'd moved out of London. I'd become a dad quite late in life. My wife is 19 years younger than me, and um, my days of going to America and all that shit were gone. Mm. And I was glad of that. And I'd moved out of London three years before the first issue of Classic Rock, specifically because I wanted to get the fuck out. Yeah. And, you know, it's that Sopranos joke, isn't it? You know, I, I tried to get out and they pulled me back in. You know, <laughs> it was like that. Yeah. So I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. I wanted to write books. Mm. And I wrote Paranoid. Yes. And that came, I wrote that. I literally I finished that and I got married the next day. And then the first issue of Classic Rock came out one week after that. And three weeks after that, I was the editor. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, I don't know. I just wasn't in a good place. Uh, I didn't know what the fuck I was supposed to be doing with my life. And um, I was always being invited out places and not going because I didn't live in London anymore. Yeah. So I either had to get an earlier train home and miss all the fun or sleep on a floor. And uh, I just felt my days of sleeping on the floor were over. I just didn't mm. fancy it anymore. Fair enough. And um, I wanted to write books. So I'd written Paranoid, and that came out about the issue three of Classic Rock, and it got amazing reviews all over the place. Amazing. And uh, from that, a, a proper literary agent got in touch and asked me if I would like to write biographies. And I said no, because the only biographies I'd ever written for little fan publishers like Omnibus and, you know, those books with lots of pictures and about 40,000 words mm. saying how bloody great the band was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought, no, I don't want to fucking do that. I want to write novels. Right. And he, and he said, okay. So I was trying to write my first novel during those years as well, and it got rejected by every single major publisher in London. I did the first three chapters. And um, again, long story short, uh, my wife and I, I remember I had a seven grand overdraft at the limit. 
every single card was maxed out to the limit. And we went on holiday to Dorset. I just spent the last of my credit card on this cottage in Dorset. My oldest was uh, three, my youngest was one, and the boy hadn't been born yet. And we were just driving around. I don't like on a holiday, you kind of get these little catchphrases on that holiday, you know, with beautiful houses by the sea or in the countryside. And the running gag was, what fucking book do I have to write to afford that? Mm. And I remember I got back and had lunch with my agent. And it turned out he comes from a military. He came from a military family and he'd lived down there. And I said, all right. I said, I'll tell you what, the whole time we were driving around, we were going, what book do I have to write to buy that? And he went, a biography. And I said, there's no money in that. He went, oh, yeah, there is. Because I used to get like two grand book. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, he said well, you know, some of my authors, they might only get 30 grand. I'm going, only? He goes, but some of them, you're talking six figures. I went, six figures for a fucking biography? Mm. He was like, yeah. I said, well, shall I just quit my fucking job then? He went, yeah. He said, if you do, I'll support you. Not support you financially, but I'll get you deals. Yeah, yeah. So I walked out on my classic rock job with two babies, a seven grand overdraft maxed out, all the credit cards maxed out, Wife not working because I've got babies. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an appallingly stupid thing to do, but I did it. And then a stroke of luck, uh, John Peel died. That wasn't the stroke of luck, but it sort of was. And I was on the phone to Robert, my agent. We were talking about it. And we were just hanging up. And I went, well, someone will probably get a book out of it. And he went, ha, ha, ha. Hang on, I'm a writer. <laughs> You're an agent. He goes, I hear you. I'll call you back. And an hour later, I had a very modest deal to write a John Peel book. Right, yeah. I had to write it in two weeks. My God. I wrote it in two weeks. Yeah. And the fucker just sold out. It sold out its first three printings in the first two weeks it came out. Mm. And suddenly I had some money coming in, real money. Yeah. And... um and that was the start of that. And then, sorry if this is too nosy, you can tell me to piss off now, but like, you know, when you sign a book deal and you get your upfront money, do you get additional money for each copy that the book sells as well? We get royalties. Right, okay. Like anything, but but you only get the royalties when you've recouped, when the publisher has recouped the advance. Right, I get you. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, if I give you £100, hmm. then the book has to sell enough copies for me to make a thousand pounds, because because the writer gets fuck all, you know, book has to make enough has to make a thousand pounds before I consider that your hundred pounds has been earned back, and then anything after that, again, you still just get a percentage, right? Okay. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I um, I must have written 30, 35 books, including stuff under different names or co-writes. Armitage Shanks. Yeah, I, I'm going to use that one. I wish I'd got that one. Um, I wrote three football books under the name Bobby Blake. Okay. Because I thought, I thought Bobby, you know, soccer, you know, I thought Bobby Blake sounds like, you know, football correspondent, you know. Bobby Blake. What's funny is that I actually was reading, it was either, I, I assume it was Get Your Rocks Off and you were talking about 
how many books you'd written under your own name and pseudonyms, but you didn't elaborate on that. And I was really interested to learn what, what other books you'd written, but there you go, uh, football books. Um, well, I've also written books I've never seen. You know, you'll do anything when it comes to money. You know, I, mean, yeah. I wrote a book on Bruce Springsteen for some Canadian company, and they sent me some of the other things they do, but they never, ever sent me a Springsteen. And it was for dog shit money, no royalties. But it'd be like this big coffee table thing, and you open it, and there'd be like three CDs in the cover. And I, I, yeah, I, and I did one on Bruce Springsteen. I've never seen it, no, not to this day. Right. Um, and I did, you know, before Classic Rock, I did a couple of things like that. Mm. For There was a fantastic publisher up in Edinburgh in Scotland. He was a guy who eventually put out Paranoid. Mm. And he was amazing because... He used to spend his whole life on the golf course. And when he wasn't on the golf course, he was banging chicks in the office and down the pub snorting coke. And in fact, he ended up marrying the prettiest girl in the office. Right. But he would come down to London every now and again. I'd meet him at his private club. We'd get completely pissed. And I'd come out with a commission to write a David Beckham book, you know, Bobby Blake <laughs> strikes again. And... Um, Gosh. <laughs> So paranoid, I said, oh, it'd be a book about Black Sabbath. He'd vaguely fucking heard of them. He went, yeah, all right, whatever. Three grand and no royalties to this day. Mm. Um, so I just wrote this because it, his name was Bill. Because um, I knew Bill would never read it because Bill never read any of the books he put out. You know, he put a book out on Osama bin Laden after 9-11. He was like, this will be a fucking hit. You know, <laughs> Princess Di got killed. Fuck me, let's get one of them out now. You know, my god, right? So, kind of exploitative, um, uh, literature, you might say. All publishers are exploitative, you mm. know, just some like to dress it up a bit nicer than others, you right. know, but they're all cuts, you know. So, um, yeah, uh, so, so, in so, I wanted to get the you know, classic rock was a became a became like a, a five-year thing that I thought I'd be doing for five minutes. Mm. I remember um, uh, I walked away from it in, in 99, within a year of the first issue, and then my wife got pregnant with our first child, and the magazine got bought by Future Publishing because yeah. it was still operating as a one-shot until mm. the day it was bought, and then they turned it into a regular monthly. Mm and offered me a regular job with a salary. Um, and I think that was the other reason I was miserable. I just no good at jobs with regular salaries. I just not. I've had a couple over the years. Um, I just have always hated them. Always. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask you about your Iron Maiden official biography that you wrote uh, in 98, I believe? So um, I know you were quite close with the band, uh, well, I know you, you wrote reviews for them that they certainly liked, uh, I think, starting with Power Slave in, in the 80s. But um, since then, you've written loads of books that are independent, your Black Sabbath book, your Metallica one, your ACDC one, on bands that are as big. But this was an official authorised biography about Iron Maiden. And I just wanted to ask, what are the differences? You, you, you said there yourself, you don't like jobs where there's a salary and that, but whatever. So it seems to me like you're kind of independent. So, so what are the differences between writing a book officially, the authorized biography of a band versus Mick Wall writes about Black Sabbath and he can say whatever the hell he wants? Well, you, you, you've just said exactly what the difference is. <laughs> right, okay. Mick Wall writes about Led Zeppelin or Guns N' Roses or Black Sabbath and can say what the hell he wants. Yeah. Or 
gets paid to come and write your version of the story, the official version. Okay. Now, Maiden, Maiden uh, was different in the sense that I had a lot of freedom. And there hadn't been a, there had only ever been one book on them, really. And that was by Gary Bushell back in 84. And that was one of those lots of pictures. I used to say to Maiden's manager, Rod Smallwood, they should have, it was called Running Free. I yeah. Think. I said they should have called it Bloody Good Blokes because that's what it is. And I said to him, I'm not doing that. I want to write a book about Iron Maiden. And this has been my whole, my whole career in a nutshell. I said, I want to write about Iron Maiden as if I'm doing a book about the Beatles. Okay. Mm. I'm going to take it seriously. Mm. And he was like, no fucking clue what I'm on about. Mm. But that's what I did. Um, and Steve Harris, who is the Iron in Iron Maiden, he and I had always been very, very close, good friends. I think he's maybe a year older than me, but a lot in common. Another one of these fucking hard men, like Liner. Mm. You know, Steve has, Steve has fucking straight-armed a few guys, including in his own band, you know. You do not fuck around with Steve Harry, Harris. Right. And I respected that about him. And, uh, and he used to love my Sky show. So we had travelled a lot around the world and had a lot of adventures, proper guys, you know, none of this fucking wimpy shit. And, um, and I knew I had, he had my back. So whatever I did with that book, I knew Steve, as long as Steve was happy, it didn't matter what anybody else thought. And that's how it is in Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Steve was happy. Um, the only one that kind of pushed for slightly softer edge was the manager Rod Smallwood Mm. but it would be very pragmatic things like a bit about Steve Harris saying what a bunch of wankers Judas Priest were Mm. but Rod was fixing to manage Judas Priest at the time oh okay could we just rephrase you know yeah 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 um there's a little bit of that, a little bit of that. But with Iron Maiden, I was lucky. There are other things I've done. I've also been lucky. I haven't done that many official books as a result. I, mean, I did the official book of Marillion, yeah, which is probably the first serious book I ever did. Which is out and of again, print now, actually, and not on Kindle. Is there ever a chance that we'll see that again? The problem is, is that I would get it up in a second, except it was written on a typewriter. I mean, it was written on, I think, about five typewriters. In fact, one of the dedications in the book from me is to all the typewriters <laughs> and the boxes of topics because I fucking, it took me about seven months and I was just, oh my God, man, what a fucking labour that was. So the problem is, is that to get it, um, you know, digitised, I'd have to... I mean, A, I do not own that manuscript. I mean, it was going back 35 years. I mean, yeah. Um, so I'd have to get the book and what scan the pages. And, fuck, have you any idea how long that would fucking take? And, oh. and, and at the end of it, from my point of view, what would I earn any money at the end of it? You know, I'm going to spend three, four, five weeks doing this. And at the end of it, what? A fucking Marillion fan is happy. Well, I, I'd read it. <laughs> That makes you feel any well, better. I'll give you the book and you can fucking scan it and put it up there, mate. Go on, send oh, me the manuscript. <laughs> Very good. We were no, saying, sorry, that's the first 
that was the fir- first official book you wrote. Sorry, what? You sorry? You were you were saying that was the first official book you wrote? Anyway, no, it wasn't. It was the oh, first sorry. book I wrote. All right, okay. Um, the first official book I ever wrote was the official biography of Ozzy Osbourne. Which oh was yes, Diary of a Madman. Hmm. I was like the fifth writer they brought in, and um, uh, one, two, three, fourth writer. And I wrote the second half of the book first because by the time it got to me, Gary Bushell was supposed to be writing the book. Mm. He'd gone to work for The Sun. I remember. He couldn't be fucked anymore. So he he wrote the first few chapters and I wrote the rest. And then the publishers got the two lot and went, Bushell stuff is shit. Mm. This is better. Let's get him to write the beginning. Mm. But I only got two grand for that. Um, In fairness, it was only about 40,000 words. I mean, my Zeppelin book is over 200,000 words and is proper. This was just done smoking tons of joints and drinking fucking beer. And I mean, if you ever read Diary of a Madman, it's full of, you know. I haven't actually read it. The track comes out of the speaker as if it's on bulletproof glass eggs and blows into your mind like a train of shit, you know. Okay. Oh, drunk. It's great stuff in there, but, you know. First draw. Must have been it's funny you mentioned Gary Bushel and the Sun because what I remember Gary Bushel from is doing reviews of EastEnders in the Sun, um, and and picking up on really minute details like saying, "Why did nobody wish Phil Mitchell a happy birthday on the September seventeenth episode of EastEnders?" Because last year on September seventeenth it was his birthday. <laughs> well, the thing about Bushel is he's an extremely intelligent guy. I think he's like a member of Men or something like that. Right. He's 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 got a huge brain, you know. Yeah. And I like Gary. We have a huge laugh whenever we're together. He's mm. there's a lot more going on there than you might think. Um uh I've got a lot of time for Gary. Um and it was Gary that brought me in. Gary liked my work. Mm. Um and, and this is at a time when I'm used to people telling me that now, but back in those days it was like Hang on, you, what you liked that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you go back and read it. I might be good. Hang on. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah. You mentioned your Led Zeppelin book, which I did want to talk about. So the the thing I found most interesting about that was um, your passages that you did in the second person perspective. So, for example, you would say something like, "You are Jimmy Page. The year is two thousand and." Seven. You've just played the O2 Arena with your band Led Zeppelin, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or whatever year it was they played. I can't remember. But um, that's something I'd never seen before in a book, and it really helped to add context and kind of lend credibility to the rest of the chapters, which were written in normal prose. But um, where, where did you come up with that idea, and and how? I nicked it. All right. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a great book written by David Peace. I haven't read all his books, but I believe this is his style. So he wrote a fantastic book called That Damned United, which was about, I think it was about 40 days, something like that. But in like 74, I think it was, uh, Brian Clough managed Leeds United for about, it was like 44 days. Mm. And uh, they made a movie out of it eventually. Um, And it was written like that. Um, so you had your what you call your normal writing, mm. but 
But then there were the, these italicized sections where he kind of got in their heads, mm. Brian Clough's head. And I found that immensely impressive because it allowed you one more step closer to reality, mm. you know. Um, and then there was another guy who still, David Peace is still around. He's a fucking mega famous author. Um, there was a journalist called David Walsh, who was like the main sports writer for the Sunday Times. Mm. He's still there, for sure. And he, for a while, had this, uh, he did these big interviews, these big profile pieces every Sunday in the sports section. And it would be like that. Uh, it, would, it would cut to these moments where um, it wouldn't be so much you are, you did this, you did that, but it would be um, very similar. And I just liked it because it just made you feel just that one step closer to being inside that person's head. Yeah. And the important thing about that for me was it gave me leeway. I mean, I, I now know how to do it without doing that particular trick. But at the time, I, I didn't know how to um, express things that weren't sort of biographical facts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did, you, did you interview him? What day was it? What, what, what you know, blah, 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 blah. So you've got all that, but that isn't how life works, mm. you know. And I've always hated cliche, particularly in music writing, which is riddled with cliche. You know, like uh, the tour ended and they had a well deserved break. Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> Who fucking goes home after a night's work? And you go, do you know what? I think I need the next six months off. It's a well-deserved break. You know, fuck off. You know, oh, they invaded the shores. No, they fucking didn't. They turned up at the airport and played a fucking show. They didn't invade any shores. <laughs> oh, <laughs> John Smith on base duties. What? Yeah. No, you mean the cunt, the cunt that everyone hates and is always pissed, him on base. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've worked a lot in the business outside of being a music journalist, and yeah. my whole idea that rock musicians maybe had a little bit extra going on than the rest of it was mm. blown to smithereens because they really fucking don't, you know. Just because they can play guitar really well or sing or whatever it might be, or they can write a great tune, doesn't mean they're not despicable fucking wankers a great mm. deal of the time. Mm. Or you or me or whoever, you know, mm. we are all uh, despicable pricks at certain times and we know it mm. and they know it. So I wanted to find a way to, you know, with Jimmy Page, that thing about you are the most. I forget what the line was, but like you are the most uh, well-known guitarist in London and the least famous. Yeah, that was early on. Yeah, yeah, because because otherwise you read these books about Led Zeppelin. It's like Jimmy doing Ray, and then he had this great idea for a band, and oh, then it worked. No, 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 no. They were all those people were his last fucking choice. He went to everyone else first. The new yards because he didn't have the fucking balls to try and call it something new. He was clinging on. Mm. His mate Jeff Beck, who wasn't as good as him, was mm. famous. Eric Clapton, who, you know, 
Jimmy does not regard as being as good as him, was famous. You know, mm. I mean, Jimmy Page still says he never saw Jimi Hendrix play live. Bullshit. Because um, <laughs> he's just, he's, he was riddled with fucking envy because he was this incredible player. He did play 6% of all the hits in the UK for a few years in the 60s. Mm. And no fucking knew who he was. Yeah. So I just wanted to get real. It's about trying to get real. That's what it's about, you know, and that was my technique on that book. But subsequently, uh, I will I will do that. I will employ that if I feel it's cool. Yeah. But I don't need to anymore. It's built more into the regular writing. I'm more, if you read my Jimi Hendrix book, which is I actually haven't read it. I know it's your favorite of your own books. I have it on my shelf there. I've never read it yet, um, but I do really? intend to. Well, it's like entirely made up of the italic sections of Zeppelin, right? And uh, and I, I, is it fact? Is it fiction? Who fucking knows? What? By the way, what are you drink? Are you drinking beer? I am. It's called Seizu. It's a uh, where is it from? Uh, Latvia or something? Hang on, you're drinking Latvian beer. I believe so. Yes, <laughs> a, pr- a proud Irishman. Talking to a, a would-be <laughs> Irishman, drinking Latvian beer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know what? It's nice. I like it. Um, it's uh, in the local shop, which is about three minutes' walk away from me. So, <laughs> I, I, I personally, this interview's coming to an end pretty fucking quick, unless I see a Guinness cracked open at any time now. Do you like whiskey? I'll have to say no. Do you like whiskey? I do like whiskey. Yes. Of course, you fucking do. What's your favourite whiskey? Uh, I'll probably say Bushmills, actually. I know that's from Northern Ireland, but I think it's the smoothest and I find it the most drinkable. But I love Jemison, uh, Powers, um, Paddy to a degree, uh, but Powers is quite nice as well. Now, listen, let me put you straight on this point, okay? Uh, I, I love Jameson's. I do like Bushmills, yeah. but it's a it's a north of the border thing, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, by the way, I'm pretty sure my dad was Protestant, either ath- mainly atheist, but I mm. think probably Protestant, hence the journey to Scotland. Yeah. But my mother was Catholic, mm. and and uh, the convent and the Pope and the holy water and everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and where she came from, the local, they have a local distillery called, I think it's Tullamore. Tull- oh, Tullamore Jew, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not big on it. Yeah. But one of my little brothers goes there all the time and brings me back a bottle, you know. Yeah, I don't really like it either. And, um, but I'll tell you what I do like. Green Spot. Green Spot. Yes. And Yellow Spot as well, actually. Which is Yellow Spot is my... F- of the green, the yellow, and the red. Yeah. The yellow is my favourite because I think it's the fiercest. Yeah. Um, I, I love the red. But I don't understand why the red is so much more expensive than the green because to me they're sort of almost interchangeable. I think they're they're aged at the the the, the length that they're aged is a part of it because they've got a blue spot now as well actually, um, and that's I think as expensive as the red, but it's not aged as long. Are you, are you sure there's a blue spot? I think there used to be a blue spot. Oh, I I, I was drinking it recently. There is a blue spot. <laughs> really? Facts. True facts. <laughs> All right. It's like I'm gonna look 
it's like something like 48% alcohol or, or 50 or something ridiculous. It's very, very strong. Um, <laughs> well, in yeah. the next room there where I keep all that stuff, I've got, um, what do you call it? Is it Jameson's Black? or? Something? Oh, yeah, yeah. I do. I really am very fond of Jameson's, but the spots, those yeah. are my favourites. But the yellow spot in particular right now. Yeah. Uh, it's got a, it's got some, the green is very smooth. I find mm. the red very smooth. Haven't had the, the red. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not that different to the green. It just costs about 60 quid more a bottle. You know? That's the problem. Yeah. The, the only time I've had yellow spot was on a work night out where there was a free bar. Um, but, uh, a friend of mine, he was my best man at my wedding. He got me a, a bottle of green spot for my, just a present for being the best man. And that went down very, very well. It was delicious. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where about St. Ireland do you live? Dublin. Uh, oh, North, North Dublin. Me. You live in Dublin. Yes. Do you know, um, uh, obviously, you know, O'Connell Street. Uh, that's a stupid uh, question. But do you know Madigan's on O'Connell Street? I do, Madigan's I do, yeah, of course, there. yeah. <laughs> I know this sounds like an Egypt's question. It's just that me and my wife love Madigan's. We were last there in 2019, the summer, when Ireland played Wales at the rugby in oh, Dublin. yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the, the the last game before they went off to the World Cup, mm. and um, we always go to Madigan's. Right. But fucking hell, did we go to Madigan's that weekend? <laughs> She's still got photographs of me. She's got photographs of me lying on my back in the hotel corridor as she's trying to drag me to the room. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel is unfair. Unfair. You know? Taking advantage of a man. <laughs> it's not a pub I'd really go to, to be honest now, but I do know it and I have been in it. Um, actually, I bought the new Iron Maiden album there a while back when it was out, and I went in there and had a pint and was listening to it. But um, it's, it's, Madigan. it's not, Madigan's, yeah. So, hang on, you, you bought the new Iron Maiden album at Madigan's? No, no, I, I bought it in the city centre, but I, I, I was disciplining myself by not listening to it. So when I got into the pub, I opened up the booklet and was listening to, or looking at the lyrics, but listened to it on Spotify. And I had a pint of Guinness in Madigan's and I was, uh, I was listening is, is to it. Is it because as a Dubliner, is it because it's too touristy? Is that it? It's too like where the tourists go? Or? You know what? O'Connell Street is, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. O'Connell Street is a fucking dump of a place. I'm not going to argue with you. I like just, uh, 50% of the people, like when I'm walking up O'Connell Street, I think 50% of them might attack me or worse, speak to me. Um, so I, I don't, I don't like O'Connell Street at all. It's gotten worse in the last few years. Like it's, it's just, it's a dangerous place in the city center. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. And um, yeah, I've been yeah. Around drunk in O'Connell Street for years now. I didn't know it was dangerous. I, uh, it's just it's full of undesirables. Let's say, um, and I used to work around that area, like in two thousand and seven to two thousand and ten, and it's gotten worse since two thousand and ten. It's just, it's just dodgy, dodgy, and I and I would fear for my safety, and I, I walk up and down it really? all the time. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking hell, mm. me and Linda been walking around there, you know. Diddly diddle do, diddly diddle do. But, but you're a you're a tourist, so you have the invincibility of of tourism. That that's grand, yeah. like you know. Yeah. So it's the same with me when I'm in other countries. I've been my drunkest ever in 
countries other than Ireland and nothing ever happens to me. Because um, it's you know that, you know that bookstore in Dublin, Chapters? Oh, yeah, it's great. Great bookshop. Yeah, that's Parnell Street. That's just perpendicular to O'Connell Street. That's that's one of my two favourite bookshops in the world. I actually picked this up there. Um, the chapters? I did indeed, yeah. Really? Was, yeah, and the, they were oh, doing... It was like seven euro, and then when I got to the till, they were like, oh, no, it's two for the price of one. So I actually got the Jimi Hendrix one as well on the same day. Um, You've got to read the Hendrix. I will. Oh, it's up there. I will read. I already had uh, Get Your Rocks Off on Kindle, but I wanted to have it on a physical book so I could highlight passages of it and just make notations on them and all that type of stuff. So, uh, anyway, I haven't really mentioned any of those, but I mean, we're, we're, we're past that now, so. <laughs> but cha- chapters, I love it upstairs, they're the second-hand section. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, man. Like, I, I literally go in there and it's like I say to Linda, my wife, I go, go in there at one o'clock and I'm like, I see about four, maybe five, but Madigan's for a Guinness. And I turn up fucking books like that, you know. Uh, speaking of books, sorry, segue there. Um <laughs> I, 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 one of the questions I, I most wanted to ask you, and um, maybe it seems obvious to you because you're a writer, but to me, when I'm reading something like your ACDC book or your Black Sabbath book, and it has so many sources, and you've done so many interviews for it, and you must have to transcribe these, or maybe somebody does it for you, and you have all of this information, how do, how do you go about putting that together into a coherent um, narrative? How, how do you approach that? Or do you have a method? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, different methods as the years go by. Um, it It's only in the last couple of years that I don't do my own transcription. Mm. And that's simply because I found a place online based in San Francisco. They're called Rev.com, R-E-V, Rev.com. And they're fantastic. You, you, uh, you upload... Um, you know, the interview and uh, mail it, uh, go on their website and you upload the interview. And even the longest interview, they'll be back to you within a couple of days and the whole thing is transcribed. But as you look at it on the screen, so you can, you can, you can highlight everything and, and copy and paste it onto a regular document. But as you're looking at the screen, Right down the, uh, on the side, there's the audio. So, you know, you do a two-hour interview and say, like, 72 minutes in, your man's saying something. And it's obvious from the, from the transcription that they haven't quite got it right. They're not quite sure what they're saying. You just literally click on that word and it will go straight to the audio. And you can mm. listen. Wow. Yeah. And it just makes the whole thing a lot easier. Mm. In terms of how you collate it, um, all those years I was doing my own transcription, you would always have half a brain going, I don't need all this. Like, for instance, this interview, if you were going to write it up, you might say to yourself, for a book, you know, you'd probably say to yourself, I don't need all that shit about chapters. I don't need all that stuff about Madigan. No, that was gold. That was gold. <laughs> well, you, you just don't transcribe that. You just wait until yeah, yeah, yeah. it starts talking about the third album or whatever it is, you yeah. know. And then I would just literally dump it so um uh one chapter at a time so the, the first chapter you want something from the beginning right everything i've got about the beginning and just put it in there you end up with this massive fifty thousand word chapter with every shit you've come up with about the early days and you just work through it you just mm. work through it 
and um, and 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 the thing you do is as you're finding stuff down. I'm not sure if this fits in this chapter. You just dump it into the next document, which is your chapter two draft. And by the time you finally finish chapter one, you go to chapter two and you find another fifty thousand words of shit that you've already just dumped in there. Mm. And so it's very laborious, and it's probably not the best method. But um, for some reason, I just find that constantly pouring over it, pouring over it, um, it, 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 the pieces start to come together in your mind. But really, it's just a case of going, oh, well, that's 1980, so that's going to go there. Mm. Figure out what to do with it later. But right now, I'm working on something relating to 1977. Mm. I just try and do it like that. Um, with Jimi Hendrix, um, I didn't do a ton of interviews. Um, I did do some, but I'd already decided I didn't want it to be that kind of book. I, 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 the way I sold it to the publishers was I said, I want it to be like the Pompidou Centre. I want all the workings to be on the outside. I was at this meeting and I said, it's going to be kind of like a fever dream, you know, because Hendrix was psychedelic. And, blah, 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 blah. and basically what I was really saying is, is I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I'm going to make it all up as I go along. I'm just going to go fucking ape shit mm. and just see what the fuck comes out of my ass when I write it. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually think that's the best way to go because all these books are purport to oh, the definitive biography. Mm. Bullshit. There's mm. no such thing. Yeah. There's no such thing. You know, and the books that have done best for me are the ones where I throw all those rules out the window. You know, like mm. Paranoid. So much of that was just made up. Yeah. And actually, so now that you get to that point, I wanted to ask you, um, so you've described this yourself as semi-autobiographical. And, and I wondered, as, as a reader, are you saying that because, one, you've actually just put fiction in there, or two, you're just being more honest than most people are when they release a biography or autobiography, which we all know contain fiction? Well, it's both of those, and there's a third reason as well, which is covering your tracks, you know, so because uh, there's a lot of stuff. Have you ever read Paranoid? I have. Right? I have read it, yeah. Oh, well, from the very first line, it's uh, some dark shit. Mm. And... Um, occasionally that can be very, very embarrassing. Um, and it has, it is a constant source of embarrassment to me when various people that either weren't in my life or weren't even in my, on my radar at the time I wrote it, yeah. uh, 20 years, whatever we are, 23 years later, suddenly they're, they're, um, they're part of your life. When I put out the, uh, Kindle version of Paranoid back in, I don't know when, a few years ago. That's, that's the one I got. I think it was 99p. I was like, that's a bargain. <laughs> well, that went to number one on the Amazon chart. Mm. And loads of people that I then associated with, just for 99p, they all just downloaded it. Of course. <laughs> it's free, but basically. <laughs> did I have some explaining to do there? <laughs> you know, It's all ranging from it is completely all made up it's a metaphor, Dictionary's metaphor for, for life, which, which I do believe and I do think it works on that level. And therefore, with certain people, it is all fiction. Mm. Other people who are a bit more switched on, um, 
yeah, it's based all based on truth, but I don't, I don't, I'm not a stickler for the truth. It's too hard to write the truth. To, to write the truth, you need a 10 volume fucking thing, you know. Yeah. I just wanted to write a cool book. Yeah. So lots of bits of teenerd, um, uh, and especially as the book goes on, I mean, there's all there's, there are some funny stories in there that I just completely made up, but they're based on reality. Okay. And so for me, it's one of my most truthful books. But also, I like I've always loved the idea of fiction and fact. These days, they call it faction. I, I, I didn't have that word available to me when I was writing Paranoid. I wish I had because mm. I would have said it's a work of faction, mm. um, which which it's mainly real, but there is an element of fiction, a strong element of fiction, mm. but I need to make it more convenient for me to write because I can't be bothered to, I, I remember saying to a friend of mine, don't try and be fair. Don't try and be fair. Do it purely, purely for your own fun and satisfaction. Don't worry about, I mean, some people's names I changed because I knew that would be wise. Some people say, I didn't. I was going to Ross Halfin and saying, look, I'm going to write all this shit. I'm going to change your name. He said, no, 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 I want my name in it. I said, yeah, but I don't know if you'll always like what he said. I don't give a fuck. You know, so I, yeah. I left his name in it. Yeah. Uh, but there was a certain amount of made-up stuff around that. Um, uh, is the heroin use true? Yeah. Right. And you came out the other end of that. That's amazing to me. Well, I had to. You know, I think um, uh, I, uh, as as the eldest, I was an only child since I was seven. I've got three brothers, but they're all much younger than me. The youngest is 13 years younger than me. And my dad literally threw me out when I was 17. Literally scruffed the neck out the door, fuck off. I remember my mum running down the street and pulling a five-pound note out of her apron pocket and giving it to me. And for my mum, that was extraordinary, that dog, you know. Yeah. But I immediately was sleeping on floors and whatever. And um, so I've never had any, any backup. I've never had any family. Like I said, I didn't know any, I'd never met any of my mother's relatives till she fucking died. Never met any of my dad's even after he died. Um and I'm the eldest. I haven't even got any older sisters to talk to, you know, or turn to. So I've always had to survive. And um, part of that survival is knowing when to get the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah. Um, and I just always felt, I never saw it as a, as a lifestyle choice. I just had nothing better to do at the time. And I was miserable and depressed and fucked up and, and um, and it was really groovy for a year or two, and then it was a fucking nightmare. And I got the fuck out of dog. It, it took me a while. It took mm. me a while, but I did do it. Yeah. And um, you know, I used to smoke cigarettes, and then I had a heart attack in two thousand and five. Mm. Stop like that. Yeah. As Lemmy would say, uh, I don't do heroin because heroin kills people. But everything kills people. I know. Verbal. Everything I know. does. You I know. Know? But I mean, having said that, I'm not trying to defend her. I think heroin is a disgusting drug because it's the one that turns you into the walking dead. Mm. And it's the one that, that robs you of your dignity. 
robs you of uh, any kind of self-respect, respect from other people. It just fucks everything. And, um, but, they, you know, they, those are very different days. We had three TV channels that would end at 11 o'clock. What else are you going to do? <laughs> well, seriously, you know. And also, I've had Philo saying to me, I don't just offer this to anybody, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was hanging out with some fucking very cool dudes doing all that, as well as all the other drugs, as well as all the other food groups. Um, and it was only when I, you know, took a, a dark turn. Um, I got out of it. I got out of it. It was a long, 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 long time ago. Yeah. Um, but I've got out of other things. You know, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's way worse things in life than that. Um, not many, but there are a, a fair few. And mm. um, get the fuck out of the dodge. You know, that's what you've got to do sometimes. And um, and not look back. You wrote a book about Lemmy, uh, which was, was one of my favorite books that you wrote, actually. And I know you had um, a friendship with him. Um, a stupid question, really, but like, what was Lemmy like? Because <laughs> everyone wants to know. <laughs> he was an absolute sweetheart. I mean, like I said to you earlier about being a despicable prick, you know, uh, yes, like all of us, he could be that. Um, but he was actually a gentleman, very good manners, um, quite camp, actually. People always look at me strangely when I say this, but, yeah, um, you know, he, he liked to get dressed up, um, and he would dress up in some fucking weird shit sometimes. And you'd go, I'm not walking down the street with you dressed in that, you know. <laughs> What's fucking wrong with you? You know. Um, uh, he, he, uh, when my mum died, um, I was 28 and I didn't know how to deal with it, mm. meaning in a social sense, like someone would go, Oh, I heard about your mum, I'm sorry. And I'd be like, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't know what to say. So I kind of shut people down. I remember at the funeral, people trying to say something meaningful to me and we just kind of, ah, come on. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was at a gig, because I was always at a gig in those days, and he came over to me and he'd heard, I don't know how he'd heard, and he stood at the bar and he just talked to me for a while. I wish the fuck I could remember what he was saying. But all I did was listen. And it really made me feel better. I'm not yeah. going to say it made me feel good, but it made me feel better. And then there was another time a couple of years later at the Donington Monsters of Rock Festival. By now I'm doing the weekly show on Sky. Hmm. The odd thing about that was, was that no, hardly anybody in England saw that show. I think in Milton Keynes they were doing an experiment with satellite TV and you could get it there. And the days of video cassettes, rock fans would share these things, you know. So I was at a gig, I'd quite often get people that would recognise me. Yeah. But in Ireland, everybody knew about it. In Europe, everybody knew about it, but not so much in England. Mm. And um, But Lemmy did, because he was living in some hotel where they had it, you know, in the room. And uh, we're at Donington, and he just uh, gave me advice uh, on how to dress, how to present myself. And this is the height of Bon Jovi and Def Leppard. And 
And uh, he said to me, you want to get a bit of facial hair? You know, you're too smooth. You're too smooth. You want to get a bit of this going on? And uh, I don't think I followed that advice because I'd always be, I mean, I, I'm a big George Best fan when I was a kid and a teenager, and he always had stubble or a beard. So the minute this could grow, which it did from about 14, I'd always had a lot of this. But at that particular moment in the 80s, um, it wasn't the deal. You know, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi. The, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. a beard-free a beard free zone, mm. um, unless you're Lemmy. And, um, but he, he, just, he just was a fucking cool guy who was very intelligent. He used to crack me up. In the mid-90s, I did his PR for a while. Yeah. And um, you just, I remember one day we had all these journalists lined up. And I'm at his hotel at like nine in the morning. That can't be right, can it? Ten in the morning? Some ridiculously early time. And all we did all day was drink whiskey, smoke cigarettes, and he'd pull these zips open on his leather jacket and pull out various things. And that's how it went to about 11 o'clock that night, by which time I'm ready to be dig a hole and put him in the fucking hole yeah. and put the earth on top, right? He's fucking over. He's done. He said, what are you doing now? I went, I'm fuck. <laughs> what do you mean am I doing? I'm dead. Yeah. yeah. So why are you doing? I'm going out. You want to come? Like, no. Yeah. Of course I don't want to fuck. Well, I would like to come. If I had any legs or brain <laughs> left at all, I would come with you. And he was older than me, but he yeah. was fucking unstoppable. Man was unstoppable. Oh, very um, good. Very good. Yeah. All right, look, we've, we've been going here a while. I'm going to wrap it up. I have two more questions for you. The first one is, did... We, we can always come back and do it again, further. Oh, look, I, I'd love to. I'd absolutely love to. This has well, been... Let's make this a weekly thing further. Let's do that, you know. And then I'll come over to Dublin. You put me up in your house. I stay a couple of months. You go to Madigan. <laughs> look, what's not to like? I, I listen, Mick. I, if you want to do it weekly, I'm here for it. But um, maybe I'll, I'll let you think about that one. <laughs> but um, two we'll questions. We'll do some more. We'll do some more yeah. definitely. Two more questions. One is: Did Bob Guccione Senior get more pussy than his son? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Bob Kenny got more pussy than anybody. You know, um, fuck it. What, what's the point in owning, in the days again before the internet, you know, what's the point in owning a, a fucking cool magazine full of sexy girls and then go, it's five o'clock. I've really got to get home. You know, me teeth in the oven. Of course he did. I mean, I mean, but don't forget, he came from a time... I'm not even going to say before me too. Never mind me too and all that bullshit. I mean the 70s when we felt we were liberated from uh, old-fashioned, antiquated, repressive ideas of fidelity or having uh, 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 feeling uncomfortable about having more than one sexual partner. I mean, the world I came into before the music business, when I just, you know, hippie house and knowing interesting people, um, they would have high-end porn mags just on the coffee table. Like you might have an art mag or a, or yeah. a cool book. or uh, Coffee um, at the Beano. Uh, uh, 
Exactly, you know, the, the Beano annual right next to the penthouse, penthouse jugs, 74 or something. Yeah. And it would be all, like, you know, they'd roll you one of these. Oh, no, this comes from the side of the hill, you see, in, in Brazil, where they the sun goes down and they pick the, you know, and you're like, oh, oh, oh. and they'd be chopping out lines going, see, in Peru, I have my man, he... He collects the, and you're going, oh, wow, wow, wow. So it was like talking about antiques or champagne or or, or just very cool, classy stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, it really was I had, I had such a clear, it was a different world. It was a different world. I think a much better world in many ways. Yeah. That doesn't mean there weren't arseholes and creeps everywhere. Of course there were. But the idea was coming out of the late 60s was, there were no more rules. Um, and if you had your shit together, you understood that. Um, and you didn't judge people. So the idea was you didn't judge a girl if she was a nude model or whatever the fuck she did. If she dealt heroin, if she was a prostitute or cool. You wouldn't, call, you wouldn't say prostitute. You never said drugs. You never said prostitute. It was hostess. Right, right. Um, Whatever you know, euphemism. But it wasn't. It was. It was very uncool to kind of get into like on get your rocks off when we talk about the actuality. <laughs> you know, you, you you didn't need to go into the actuality. It, it, it just was about. It was understood that you were part of a world where none of those rules applied. This is before AIDS. This is before. Um, what was that one before AIDS? Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, that it's like a virus spots. I can't fucking remember. Anyway, it was before, it, you know, we, we, we had, we had the antibiotics, which cured venereal disease. Um, and it just felt like a time when we were living in the future. The future was not about being hung up about that kind of bollocks. And um, and I'm not, whether it was right or it was wrong, it, it didn't feel weird. It felt liberating. Yes. You know, I, yeah. I, I couldn't wait to discover more about it, you know. Hmm. Very good. All right. Well, look, on, the, on a final note, I'd like to ask you, how are you getting on with Patreon? <laughs> Uh, i got a couple of questions first of all and you'll be able to answer this um i had no idea about the paywall or why you only put atp in or whatever it is but i've got a few of these fuckers now that came in for atp or whatever and they're still there yeah how do i get rid of them or let them know they've got to pay the 10 pounds so what i would imagine is is that you have some payment settings set up for no minimum and I saw you changed it to what is 12 euro and my size, probably 10 pounds, which I signed up to. Um, but uh, yeah, but you, you need to eliminate that tier. Uh, or what you do is you restrict what the people who are only paying ADP can see. So there will be some mechanism where you can have this person sees all of this content and this person who's only paying ADP sees virtually nothing um as, as i said again i haven't used it as a creator i've used it as a as a user but there will be some mechanism where you can restrict what the the adp people are seeing and then you can 
give the 12 12 euro or 10 pound people everything or and you can do stuff in between as well you can like five pounds you you get the podcast but you won't get the articles etc etc so there, there'll be some level system in it definitely no i, I think there would be I, can i find it can i fuck i don't know what's going on so i might did, have to come back to you did you watch that video seriously watch that video 20 minutes of your life go and watch it Really? Well, you've been on the phone an hour and a half with me, so twenty minutes of your life is is not too uh, much. An hour and a half having a blather with an Irishman <laughs> is, is is a lot easier than watching some fucking guy on YouTube saying. And you'll notice on the screen, I'm like, I can't fucking see it. I've got to pause him, go and look at that. And I nearly quit the whole thing yesterday. I nearly just went fuck all this. I can't be bothered. If this is going to be your future, it's worth investing twenty minutes in. How about that? All right, Dad. Okay. <laughs> All right, so that was a long interview, and uh, what a fucking interview it was. Jesus Christ. Mick didn't leave any stone unturned. Uh, promises there for future interviews. I'd love to speak to him again. As I said to him there, I had 20 questions written down. I maybe asked him 10 of them. Um, but that is going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. I'll be back soon enough with the final two episodes of Arc Sabbath, my Black Sabbath series that I've been running here for, I don't know, several months. Um, but I just want to say, for any uh, budding podcasters or people who, I don't know, are are trying to do some kind of creative endeavor where they require the input of other people, the lesson I've learned from uh, contacting Mick Wall is don't take yes for an answer. You heard me correctly. Don't take yes for an answer. I initially spoke to Mick back on the 19th of May. I made contact with his people on the 5th of May. Uh, That's over four months ago, as you will know. And um, he initially said yes, and then he had to cancel, unfortunately, on that um, date that we had scheduled. And then I was back and forth with him, and he said he would do it again, and it, it was difficult to nail down a date. But persistence is the key in all of these pursuits, if you're doing a podcast, if you're trying to interview somebody for a magazine, whatever you might be trying to do, don't give up on the people who you want to speak to. Uh, I, I felt at one point I was pestering Mick Wall, as I said at the start of the interview, and he said, no, no, uh, I, I'm you know, to blame for not sorting it out with you. And the thing is, like people like Mick Wall, people in bands and those type of people, they generally do want to speak. And they generally do want to tell you their stories. And if you persist and you keep going, they will speak to you. Just don't give up. Don't take yes for an answer. Anyway, that's going to do it for me. That's going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. My name is Fergal Trainer, and I will see you next time.